Most of us growing up had some sort of vision or dream about what the good life would be like for us. Probably different depending on where you grew up and what your family circumstances were, but, uh, but something that you imagined uh, would make your life good. It would be the good life for you. For me, it included um, having a house that was a two-story house. We lived in one-story houses uh, for a long time, and I had a cousin who had a two-story house, and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And when my grandparents moved to the lake, they got stairs in their house, and that was cool. It would, if it had a pool, that would be even better uh, for me. It, uh, the good life meant taking vacations that were not just going to see family, right, that, that were actually a destination uh, for fun for us as a family. The, the good life meant getting a car when I was 16 and old enough to drive. It meant doing well in school and, and going to college. Uh, further out, it meant that I would go to college and get a job, a well-paying job, and then get married and have kids and, uh, and basically live happily ever after, right? For, some of, for most of us, there's something that propels us in that way that drives us as a dream of the good life. Well, some of those things happened. We eventually got a two-story house. I was in high school, but we got a two-story house. No pool, but that was okay. I did get a car when I, was, when I turned 16, but it was stick shift. So that meant if I wanted to drive it, I had to learn how to uh, do it. And I'm so glad now for that, but I hated every second of learning how to uh, drive that car. I, I did well in school. I went to a, a good college. So some of those things that meant a good life for me actually happened, but some of those things didn't happen, and some of the vision had to change because life happened, and circumstances changed. My parents got divorced. Uh, my degree that I chose was not, is not famous for creating well-paying jobs. Uh, I did not get married right out of college. I did not have children in my 20s. Everything that I thought was going to make my life happily ever after just kept getting delayed more and more. I wonder about the good life for you and, and how that maybe has transpired over time. What I began to realize when I looked at what I thought the good life was was that much of what defined a good life for me was about a what, what I had, what I accomplished, what I achieved. And as I've been reflecting on it the last several years, I realized that really the good life is more about who and how, who I am, who God is, and how I'm living in relationship with God and with others. The good life really is what Paul writes to Timothy. As for those who in this present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. That's the good life. The life that really is life. 
I wonder how this is true for you. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive your word to us today, that it would take hold of us and transform us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. For many uh, people who live in America, we have a dream that we associate with the American dream. Certainly there is an aspect of the American dream that, that started out as requiring hard work to achieve, but, but the dream really was about being able to earn money, to have a job, to be successful, and it's turned into to being successful by the things that we have and the things that we do. The American dream is often about being able to acquire more than we have. It's about being able to be successful related to the culture around us based on what we have, what we visibly have to show for what we've done. The American dream is a lot about consuming and acquiring and and buying. And for many people, the American dream actually has become more of a nightmare than a dream. Adam Hamilton uh, we, is a pastor at Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City, in Leewood, Kansas. And uh, we've looked at this book enough before. Uh, this is a revised edition of it. We're coming up revisiting this book about what it means to have enough and what it means to live a life of simplicity and generosity and, and how that is part of the good life that God calls us to. And Adam Hamilton says there's, there's two illnesses really that impact this American dream in, in making it a, a nightmare. The first is affluenza. You can actually, this is now a word, uh, you can look it up in the dictionary and it will give you this information. PBS did a documentary on this in 1997. There's since been a book that has been written and edited a couple of times. I think the latest version came out in 2014. But affluenza, the constant need for more and bigger and better stuff. According to that PBS documentary, affluenza is that bloated, sluggish, and unfulfilled feeling that results from efforts to keep up with the Joneses. It is an epidemic of stress, overwork, waste, and indebtedness caused by the dogged pursuit of the American dream. It is an unsustainable addiction to economic growth. We see evidence of affluenza in our culture in that in 1973, the average home size was just over 1,600 square feet. And in 2016, the average home size was 2,700 square feet. Slate.com is a, 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 a place that does research. Uh, it talks about storage industry. In, in 1960, really, there was, you, you didn't pay to store yourself stuff somewhere else. But in 2016, there's approximately 2.3 billion square feet of storage space in the United States. So stuff that we buy or that we inherit, honestly, some of our stuff that we don't pay for storage, but our garage is full of stuff we've inherited, right? Stuff that we, we have that has a, has a purpose, it has a use, but we don't have space 
for it to fulfill its purpose or its use, so we pay to store it somewhere else. I mean, in theory, when it started, it was probably a good idea. And probably, and I think a lot of people, I have friends who have storage units who say, I'm just, it's just there temporarily until I can go through it. Temporarily becomes years and years. A friend of mine recently cleaned, her father died a year ago, and he had three storage units. His wife has been dead for about 10 years, and there was stuff in those storage units when she died. And they just kept paying for the storage units. And she and her brother finally cleaned them out and finally had someone come and just take it all. And I thought, oh, gosh, the stuff that was so important that she needed to store it, that they needed to store it, and now there's not even really time or energy to go through it, but you've paid for it to be stored, right? That affluenza, that that sense of needing more and and needing stuff, this illness really that that creates this, this sense of of despair for us in a lot of ways. This it reinforces uh, the American dream of having more stuff and, and that that's what makes us successful. The other illness is uh, called credititis. I'm not sure that one's actually in the dictionary. That may be Adam Hamilton's uh, illness definition. But it is basically an illness brought on by the opportunity to buy now and pay later, feeding on our desire for instant gratification. This kind of mindset is what fuels our current economy, our current businesses, and our our current retailers, right? This sense that you can have it today, and you'll pay for it for the next five years. And really, some of it you don't have to start paying for until next year. But when you look at what you end up paying for it, it's much more than what it originally was In the last 20 years, credit card balance has tripled, and the average minimum payment is cut in half. So on some credit cards, it it could take you more than two lifetimes. If you only pay the minimum payment more than two lifetimes to actually pay off whatever it was that was so important that you had to have it in that moment. Car loans. In 1973, the average car loan was for 36 or 48 months. In 2016, car loans for 72 to 84 months. Home mortgages that now extend to 50 years, the consumer, uh, it consumes up to a third of people's total household income. We become house poor is sometimes what we call it for people. You buy a great house, but you can't live because you're indebted to your house. College students are now graduating with an average, and this is an average, and this might be low Yeah, this might be low. $37,000 in debt. They don't even have a job yet. And this is what they owe. Credititis, this financial um, illness, this addiction to having stuff, this addiction to being able to to show the world who we are by, by what we own. In recent years, financial stress has risen to the top of what people are most worried about. Finances and financial stress is, if not the top, one of the top reasons or causes for uh, divorce in our country. 
not only the amount of this, this how this, in, this influences us, the affluenza and the credititis, but that we're, we don't talk about that. We have different ideas about what finances should look like and, and how that operates. And so the stress of managing finances moves way to the top of what worries us and creates struggles for us. Rarely are we satisfied with what we have. If you ask most people, they'll say, if I just had a little more, I would feel secure. If I just had a little more, I would be happy. Dave Ramsey says that uh, people think they will be secure if they have just 20% more. It doesn't really matter what your income is. Most people will say whatever number they give you that would make them secure or happy is about 20% more. For some reason, we're not satisfied with what we have. And these diseases are wreaking havoc <laughs> with our, our lives, with our homes, with our families, with our culture. Underneath the affluenza and the credititis is actually a much deeper problem. Underneath the symptoms really gets to the root of the heart of the matter, that, that, that it's a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual issue about, about whether or not we live with what we've been entrusted, whether or not we believe that God will provide what we need. So often what we need, we confuse with what we want, right? But as ones who belong to God, we believe that God provides what we need. And most of the time, friends, God provides more than we need, God gives us, there's nothing inherently wrong in money or in things. But when our hearts and our souls are consumed by having that money or having those things, and that money and those things define who we are, then there's a problem. Adam Hamilton in this uh, book writes, uh, write this, this, I couldn't say it better than, than he, uh, about this inherent problem that is within us. Our souls were created in the image of God, but they have been distorted. We were meant to desire God, but we have turned that desire toward possessions. We were meant to find our security in God, but we find it in amassing wealth. We were meant to love people, but instead we compete with them. We were meant to enjoy the simple pleasures of life, but we busy ourselves with pursuing money and things. We were meant to be generous and to share with those in need, but we selfishly hoard our resources for ourselves. This comes, friends, from the brokenness within us. That's part of our human nature, part of the sin that, that we carry with us because we're born into this broken world. When you look at the deadly sins, it's interesting that three of the deadly sins, the seven deadly sins, actually speak to this issue when you think about envy, wanting so badly what someone else has that you're willing to do anything for it. Never mind the relationship. It's what you want that they have. Or the greed, that there's things that you want so badly that, that you're willing to, to do them. You're never satisfied with them. And that sin of gluttony that even when we are full, even when we are past satisfaction, we want more. We crave more. We seek more. 
1 Timothy, for the love of money. Please hear that. It's not money that's evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's when our love for money displaces our love for God. When our love for money displaces our love for God or our relationships with one another. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. In Ecclesiastes, the lover of money will not be satisfied with money, nor the lover of wealth with gain. This also is vanity. It's pride. It's about thinking that we can do it, that we are responsible for ourselves and able to do that. And in Matthew, for what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? When we're willing to let material things and achievements define us and become all that we seek, we give up the life that God intends for us. That's how the American dream becomes really the American nightmare. John uh, reminds us that Jesus says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The, The thief being that we have an enemy, a spiritual enemy, a spiritual foe, who knows that the life God gives us is better than any life we could attain on our own. And so the the enemy will come to steal and to kill and to destroy. And Hamilton writes, in order to destroy us, the devil doesn't need to tempt us to do drugs or to steal or to have an extramarital affair. All the devil needs to do is convince us to keep pursuing the American dream, to keep up with the Joneses, to borrow against our futures, to enjoy more than we can afford, and to indulge ourselves. By doing that, the devil will rob us of joy, will make us slaves, and keep us from doing God's will. There's a great uh, TED talk that I'm going to show in just part of it in just a second uh, by two guys uh, that are responsible for the website called theminimalists.com. Their names are are, uh, Ryan Nicodemus and Joshua Fields Milburn. The name of the video is Rich Life with Less Stuff. It's really about Ryan's journey from pursuing the American dream to living with meaning and purpose and passion. Tonight is is really just part of it. We're going to pick up part of it next week. I believe the link to it is actually in your uh, bulletin as well. So if you wanted to go, it's maybe in the sermon questions, if you wanted to go look at the whole thing, I think it's about 14 minutes in length, but it's really well done. And I just want you to hear part of Ryan's story about pursuing the American dream. Five years ago, my entire life was different from what it is today. Radically different. I had everything I ever wanted. I had everything I was supposed to have. I had an impressive job title with a respectable corporation, a successful career managing hundreds of employees. I earned a six-figure income. I bought a fancy new car every couple years. I owned a huge three-bedroom condo. It even had two living rooms. I have no idea why a single guy needs two living rooms. I was living the American dream. Everyone around me said I was successful. But I was only ostensibly successful. You see, I also had a bunch of things that were hard to see from the outside. Even though I earned a lot of money, I had heaps of debt. But chasing the American dream, it cost me a lot more than money. 
My life was filled with stress and anxiety and discontent. I was miserable. I may have looked successful, but I certainly didn't feel successful. And it got to a point in my life where I didn't know what was important anymore. But one thing was clear. There was this gaping void in my life. So I tried to fill that void the same way many people do, with stuff. Lots of stuff. I was filling the void with consumer purchases. I bought new cars and electronics and closets full of expensive clothes. I bought furniture and expensive home decorations, and I always made sure to have all the latest gadgets. Oh, and when I didn't have enough cash in the bank, I paid for expensive meals, rounds of drinks, and frivolous vacations with credit cards. I was spending money faster than I earned it, attempting to buy my way to happiness. And I thought I'd get there one day eventually. I mean, happiness had to be somewhere just around the corner, right? But the stuff didn't fill the void. It widened it. My life lacked meaning, purpose, passion. If you would have asked me what I was passionate about, I would have looked at you like a deer in headlights. What am I passionate about? I had no idea. I was living paycheck to paycheck, living for a paycheck, living for stuff, living for a career that I didn't love, but I wasn't really living at all. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You heard him say, I wasn't really living at all. He had everything and nothing. We'll finish some of his story next week, but I invite you to consider what it is that the American dream has done to our culture and perhaps how it has shaped your own life. As ones who belong to God, the real dream is not for us is not the American dream. The real dream for us is a dream of life, abundant life, marked by doing good, by being rich in good works and generous. It's a life dream focused on God, on God's presence and God's provision, on, on God's passion and God's purpose for us. What we need is a change of heart, not a change of circumstances or stuff, but a change of heart and allowing Christ by the power of God's Spirit to work in us. As we're honest about what motivates us and what we do and what we pursue, we become more open to a different vision or a different dream about what God wants. We become more open to actually seeking God's kingdom first and in sensing in that we're sensing a higher calling to life that that is uh, comprised of simplicity and faithfulness and generosity we discover that being rich has nothing to do with wealth and everything to do with how we use our resources and our time and our talents to make a difference in the world participating in God's mission in the world and we develop an understanding that this abundant life of generosity is actually what God wants for us, not something God wants from us. I think we often falsely assume that God wants generosity from us as an obligation. 
When in fact, I think it's more true that God wants generosity for us as an opportunity, as a way of receiving another gift from God, of God's love and care that comes from a deep trust in who we are and who God is. Abundant life is what God wants for us, and it has nothing to do with what we have or what we achieve and everything to do with who we are and who God is and how we live. I wonder what the right dream would look like for you. We all are in different circumstances, different places in our lives, in our careers, in our families, and and where we are. But I wonder what the right dream looks like for you. No matter where you are, there are some first steps to helping define what the right dream is, simplifying our lives and silencing the voices that constantly tell us that we need more. You know, when I, when I forget most about what the culture tells me is when I'm in the mountains of North Carolina and I'm not watching TV or listening to the radio or on the Internet. I cannot be bombarded by ads telling me what I'm missing out on, right? Silencing the voices of comparison and, and the thief that would come to steal and kill and destroy. We, live, we can live counterculturally by living below, not above our means. By building into our budgets the money to buy with cash instead of credit. By building into our budgets what we need to live generously and faithfully. Uh, you know, sometimes we, nobody teaches us how to build a budget. Nobody teaches us how to manage money. We want to help you do that. One of the tools is a basic budget worksheet. It's on the back of your insert in your bulletin, and and we just uh, provide it for you to think about, even if you have no plans of doing anything about it, find out what you're spending every month for these things. I think sometimes we're surprised at where our money goes when we actually sit down and look at it. We're all in different places with this. But for all of us, God wants more for us than from us. And so I wonder if that shift of a perspective, believing God wants this for you, how does that influence what you do in response? What are the next steps for you for a good life, an abundant life? It's not going to just happen. But it is available to all of us, for all of us. What does your dream of a good life look like? And how does that dream match God's dream for you? Let us pray. Loving God, it's so easy for us to get caught up in the world around us, the world of stuff and things and achieving and doing. And we get innocently caught until we're no longer innocently in it, but willingly participating in a culture that drives that sense of value and worth tied to things and accomplishments. Help us, O oh Lord, help us to understand that we aren't what we have, that we are your beloved children for whom you generously provide all that we need. There's so many people and so many things asking for things from us. So that even in the church, sometimes we think that we're always being asked for something. 
something to be given from us. Lord, help us to see differently that this good life, this life of simplicity and generosity and faithfulness is what you want for us, not from us. Help us receive the opportunity to live the good life that you intend for us. Lord, help us have courage to take the first steps toward living in this good life, this dream that is yours for us. So that as a church, we might be a model for the community and for the world about what that looks like. We ask for this. We pray for this, for your help and for that courage in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.